Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Darkest Horse Podcast. This is Shante Thurman, co-host. And I'm Rada Jovovich, your other co-host. Yay! So this week, we've got a really great interview featuring someone that has become a dear friend of ours here at the Darkest Horse, Dr. Ugo Ka Acedo, the healthcare scientist, systems architect, and cyberneticist who currently works at the Center for Collective Intelligence at MIT. If you're wondering what that place is, Google it. You're going to be like super impressed, I promise. He has a very multidisciplinary background in electronics engineering, and then he went on to earn a PhD in biosciences more specifically in uh, neurobiology, immuno-oncology, and metabolic disorders. He's had very impressive pre- and post-doctoral fellowship experiences that he'll definitely reference throughout our conversation. Did I forget anything about his bio, Rada? I mean, a million things because he's wildly brilliant and has done all sorts of interesting stuff. True. All right. So I want to go on the record um, right now and just say that this is probably my favorite interview. I know I say that often, but honestly... I think that as the conversation progressed, I learned so much about him and that we just share so many things in common. And it was just hard not to fall in love and just to be so proud of who this person is. You'll hear it. I don't want to spoil all the fun. Yeah. A fun fact about Hugo is that he's actually somebody that both you and I, Shantae, have met him independently. I met him at the Wharton Healthcare Business Conference. I don't remember how many years ago. And how did you come across him? Yeah. So I met Hugo where I meet most amazing people. And that's well, lately mm-hmm. on LinkedIn. <laughs> that's where I live. And so upon connecting, we just immediately both noticed our shared interest in digital health and, uh, and innovation, emerging technology, the future of work. Basically, I was just like, oh my God, Hugo might be the male version of myself. <laughs> because when you see him, you'll quickly note that he is a black person, but actually he's considered himself to be an Afro-Colombian. So that's something that we share in common, that I am also a black Latina. He, he was born and raised in Colombia, moved to the United States upon receiving some scholarships to pursue his PhD. Yeah. And he, he self-describes as a creative and skeptical mind. And I would enthusiastically agree with that characterization. And I think that you describe him at one point in the podcast as one of the smartest humans on the planet. He um, is. He's brilliant. Well, yeah, which also sounds about right. He is a thought leader in collective intelligence, which I think he describes as how people can work smarter collectively as opposed to individually and the future of work, which are big domains for us here at the darkest horse and also personal kind of intellectual passions of mine. And I think in fact, he is working with the person who conceived of the concept of the future of work. That sounds correct. Yeah. So no big deal there. Um, (laughs) But yeah, that's, I think, some of the reason that this interview is really exciting because we've got a true thought leader on our hands here. We do. And we hope that you all stick around and listen. It's going to be a long conversation, I would say over probably over an hour, but I just encourage everyone to stick around and listen because you should not be bored. We make lots of headway, cover lots of ground. Heck yeah. Cool. So see you on the flip side. Hello, Hugo. How are you? Hi, Chante. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for joining us on the show. Thanks for having me. I'm very excited to be here. I'm just humbled that you took time and that you've actually taken time in the past to give me more of your backstory. So why don't you tell us your full name and then what you do, and if you wouldn't mind, give us a mini overview about yourself. Sure. My name is Hugo Caicedo. Hugo is the Spanish version of Hugo in English. I am not Spanish. I am actually African-Colombian or Black-Colombian. I 
consider myself a multicultural creative and skeptical mind in the sense that I'm always questioning the nature of things and often asking why and what if. That's kind of like how I operate. So I have lived in three different continents thanks to my undergrad and graduate studies. And professionally speaking, I have a very multidisciplinary background. It goes from digital electronics and artificial intelligence to biotechnology, neurobiology, healthcare, and corporate development strategy. I had worked in the biopharmaceutical industry, and I recently took a role at the MIT Center for Collective Intelligence as a lead systems architect at the Supermind Design Lab at the Sloan School of Management. So along with world-renowned experts, we are developing the frameworks for the future of everything. And this is an idea that was initiated a couple of years ago by Dr. Tom Malone, who was the one that introduced the expression of the future of work. So now he is trying to expand the, this concept with, with everything. So supported by the most advanced technological, scientific, and business management resources from MIT, I am contributing to leading efforts for building a biotech supermind. I am also a contributor to uh, the prestigious Harvard Health Law blog, and I lecture at Harvard University as, as well. Wow. So I'm talking to one of the smartest humans on the planet. This is why I was so excited and eager to get you on the show because when I saw your background, I was literally blown away. And as a person who identifies a Black Latina, I can't even tell you how motivated it made me and how proud I was. And I wanted to get to know you and your backstory. I'm, I'm happy to, to get to know you more as well. <laughs> well, thank you. And if you wouldn't mind, you said that you're originally from Colombia. Could you tell us more about your journey to moving to the United States and then your education decisions and how you've gotten here more specifically? Sure. As I mentioned before, I have lived in three different continents thanks to my undergrad and graduate studies. So I got a bachelor's in electronics engineering from the Universidad del Valle in Colombia. Then I started my doctorate in biomedical engineering and neurobiology at the University of Illinois at Chicago. During that time, I was the recipient of a couple of pre-doctoral fellowships, different places, MIT, Bogaziz University, Antal University in Turkey, and the Université Pierre and Marie Curie uh, in Paris, France. After I finished my PhD, I was offered a postdoctoral fellowship at a joint division of Harvard and MIT. Then I went to work in the biopharmaceutical industry. And while I was working in this sector, I went back to school and I obtained a professional graduate specialization in corporate sustainability and innovation at Harvard University. What made you go into the, to explore the corporate side of things? You know what? That's, that's a very interesting question because before that, I had been in academia my entire life at different places around the world. One of the things that I really wanted to do was to be able to engage in translational research. I really wanted to be able to have a bigger impact into the real world beyond just basic research 
and scientific publication. So I decided to actually try to explore the industry world. But interestingly enough, during my graduate studies, I had little interest in business. But then mm. when I went to work in industry, I gradually started to realize that business is a critical driving force for innovation. And the reason I said that is because in business, there are clear time-dependent milestones and a bottom line, which is usually a blur in the academic environment. So that really resonated a lot with me, but I had not really been trained with any business acumen. So that's why when I was in industry, I realized that I really need to improve my management and business acumen. And that's why I went back to school. And that just really complemented my entire background and really helped me improve my perspective about what the key value drivers in science, technology, and business are. Yeah, that's amazing because many people don't have that epiphany as early as you did in your career. And I think it's very vital to the future of humanity. I think many of us get so stuck in our ways being a business. I'm thinking like a business person. If you're in the nonprofit or the government sector, you think this is how it is. You sort of get stuck there. And I can understand that because that becomes your life work. But how do we tie it all together? And what are the drivers that are actually impacting the world? And why are we even doing the work in the first place? Why are we doing the research in the first place? Well, likely because you're trying to create a new innovative medicine, research, insights, or an actual material that will go and be the piece in a car or a piece in an airplane. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that I am a strong supporter of science and engineering and technology. One thing that I have come to realize is how well we actually deal with emerging problematic situations depends more on the quality of our perception and the approaches that we actually use to address them rather than just on science and technology itself. So one thing that is, is very interesting to me is how people actually use, abuse, and misuse the word innovation. And to tell you the truth, there are very few innovators. There are great creative people coming up with prototypes, but there is a very big difference between a working prototype and innovation. A working prototype is just something that has been proven to work well under control conditions in a laboratory or in a proper setting. But then an innovation is when you are able to bring that idea and you're able to actually reliably and reproducibly scale it up. So it has to work in the real world under completely different conditions. And that's why we get to see a lot of misalignment with a lot of different technologies and science because they just don't pass that test. So they're great protests, but they're not innovations. See, that's a great point. So in business, innovation is so broad and any startup would be considered a prototype. The runway for trying and failing is a little different. That being said, have your thoughts about innovation changed at all? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And what I just said is pretty much the product of an evolution within my thinking. Because when I used to just be a scientist or a biomedical engineer, like I said, I was in a silo. And I was just with people that were just providing like confirmation bias information. So when you're in that environment and you don't get other perspective you easily get confused and you get it wrong because you're working with research and prototypes and you keep hearing people saying, oh, this is an innovation. Oh, wow, we are innovators. And then you start to believe that 
But then when I actually happen to go to the business school training and I get to connect with people from a variety of different industries and sectors and world-renowned experts, and they lay down the actual gap and difference between what a prototype or an idea is compared to what a real innovation is, then is where you actually start like questioning your assumptions, your biases. And in my case, I just became more curious about like improving my understanding and just trying to be a little bit more skeptical whenever I hear that somebody's an innovator. Yes. I think this is such a good conversation and I'm hopeful that people in education would listen to something like this because this is the question that they're asking. How do we prepare youth for the future, right? And it's about blending models so that we actually can come to a greater understanding about what the world needs in order to thrive. I agree with you. I mean, I think that the way that the world is actually progressing is not just about isolated subjects. And that's part of the reason I was excited about joining this team at MIT. And that's because the idea is to explore a convergence from completely unrelated fields of knowledge, including, like I said, design and system thinking to cognitive sciences management, because everything really helps challenge our assumptions and really they create a stronger foundation to address real world problems. Yes. I'm super eager to hear that. And I think it's fun to explore the new convergences that will arise because two people can have a conversation and then one person could be a biomedical scientist and the person could be a lawyer, but no two dyads are ever going to be the same. So constantly bringing new people together will bubble up new things, I'm guessing. Absolutely. Well, I want to get back to the conversation about your youth, but would you mind reflecting back to your youth and telling us if you had any inclination that this is where you'd be? Yes. Uh, and to be honest, when I was a little child, I was not a straight A student. I would do well at school, but I was actually more interested in salsa dancing and playing football or soccer, how you guys call it. I was also intrigued about several different topics from social injustice and racial inequality in Colombia to Michael Jackson in the U.S. and also this book called The Little Prince by the French author Antoine de Saint-Exupéry. That's a philosophical essay that includes social criticism of the adult world and makes observations about human nature, such as human courage, brotherhood, and values. So that's one of the books that I really remembered from when I was a high school student because it just captured my attention at that early stage. In any case, I never thought I would end up traveling the world and getting educated and working at some of the most prominent organizations and institutions of the world. Yeah. I mean, is this the track that most of the Black Latinos, Afro-Colombians are aspiring to have? What were you told or what were you taught and raised to think your future could hold? Well, I mean, I cannot really speak for the majority of the population, but for a long time, like I said, I wanted to be a football player. I was really good at playing football, like South American football. So when I started high school, at some point, I didn't do well in mathematics. I was actually struggling with algebra. I went to study groups. But then one day, I remember I went over some lessons on my own. And out of the blue, everything became clear to me. 
and I became really good at math. And then I took a biology class and I fell in love with genetics. But I ultimately ended up going to college to pursue a degree in electronics engineering. And I thought I wanted to be an electronics engineer. Well, you did that and then you kept pursuing it. And now the evolution is taking a different course, but all for the better, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. But like the point I wanted to to make was that it, it wasn't scripted. There was right. no like a formal plan and I had different interests at the beginning. I faced different challenges, but then I thought I wanted to be something and I pursued that, but that hasn't really defined who I am today because I'm not just an electronics engineer. Yes, absolutely. You know, the message that resonates the most with me is it wasn't like you you had this grand plan of doing something and say I'm going to do it this way and I'm very intentional about going about that and the fact that there's been not necessarily failure but imperfection right what has that taught you well I mean it's just part of life I mean for some people they have everything scripted and they just follow those instructions and that might work for them but in my personal case I was just very intrigued about understanding the nature of things. I think that that's kind of a major driver. And whether that was just being really good at playing football or being interested about French literature, I think that that was how I was making progress towards identifying what was meaningful to me, where I really wanted to see myself and how I wanted to create value. Did you have any mentors helping you figure this stuff out? Well, yeah, I think that the unofficial mentors, they're always there. So my first role model was my sister. She was extremely intelligent. And my mom would tell my younger brother on me, well, you guys can't be less than your sister. So (laughs) we have to keep it up. So right there, you have a motivating factor at a very early age. Then it was Uncle Eric. He was a young lawyer, the only college educated person I knew in my family. And he was always very articulate, smart, and socially conscious. A person that you really get that sense that you aspire to be like. So he would travel to Europe frequently, and that was kind of fun for me to actually see. But then finally, at a class I took in college, I met one of the best physicists of Columbia at that time. And he's just got this natural talent to spot other talent. So he actually started mentoring me. And later, he actually mentored my brother as well. Wow. How many siblings do you have? I have one sister and one brother. Okay. One of the conversations we had, you said that all three of you are pretty much in biomedical or technical professions, right? Correct. What do your siblings do? Well, my sister, she's a bacteriologist. Right now, she's a director for a biomedical center in Colombia. My brother, he's a doctor in material sciences, and he is a professor at one of the best universities in Colombia. The super interesting thing is that both of my parents never finished high school. Well, my brother actually finished it, but that was when I was actually finishing my bachelor's, which was pretty cool because we would study together. (laughs) 
but my parents didn't have any formal higher education, but they actually had the best education in the world as far as values, integrity, discipline, perseverance, and hard work. And those are pretty strong foundational pillars. Tell us about that. Well, coming up from a impoverished and rural area in Colombia as a black Colombian at that time was difficult for people to get access to good jobs or higher education. However, my parents, one goal that they always had was that their kids were going to finish high school and go to college. So they were extremely supportive of that. And they managed to help us get into college without worrying about having to work to pay for the education. So we're fortunate to get into a public university in Colombia, the Universidad del Valle, which happened to be one of the best universities in Colombia and is one of the most affordable universities based on your social economic status. So mm. that really helped. But like I said, I mean, a lot of people, they go to college and they just feel that, okay, well, I'm entitled, I'm here, I'll do whatever. But then if there is no strong foundations about discipline, perseverance, and hard work, that doesn't really get translated into anything. And that's what I think mm -hmm. my parents did very well with that. Amazing. I just love stories like that because it teaches you that, first of all, you can't judge a book by its cover and that you really can do anything. And while you can't ignore who you are, where you come from, it doesn't have to stop there, right? And I think the point is, for anybody who's listening, if they are a parent and they feel like, how is my kid going to become you? There's no recipe for success other than some of those values that you mentioned. It starts with that and then putting the hope and the dream that you can do it. You can. And how that all unfolds is fun to watch. So what do your parents think about your journey now and the fact that you are going to be at MIT full time? I haven't told him yet. By the time this airs, you'll probably have told them. What do you think their reaction is going to be? I tried to meet up with my parents at least twice a year. So a couple of years ago, we made a deal and we said, okay, we're going to try to see each other at least twice a year. So they'll come here during the summer time and I go down there during winter time. But then I was just remembering the other day, one time when my mother came and she was like, hey, you know what? I just never thought that you were that intelligent. <laughs> <Shoot. Yeah. laughs> it's funny. Uh, <laughs> and I was like, well, you know what? Uh, me neither. <laughs> oh, I mean, like, like I mean, just remember, I, a while ago, when I started high school, I was struggling with math. But then that really didn't deter me from actually getting educated at Harvard. So right. is this perception, right? You have to be an A straight student to succeed in life. But what if you have been approaching a subject the wrong way? And it's not that you're less intelligent. You just need to change the, the strategy to make it work. And I think that that's kind of like what happened with me. I, I was not really doing the right thing. Mm -hmm. And like I said, one day out of the blue, something that was extremely difficult for me, I went back to it and everything was crystal clear. And I was just flying. I was like, okay, now I can do this algebra thing. And I became really good. So things like that, I think that oftentimes are unexplored. And people should really pay more attention to that instead of just precluding kids from identifying what their true inner potential is. Yeah. 
such a great point. We all have these sort of preconceived notions. It's not our fault because socially we're taught that the narrative right now is STEM, education. We're pushing that everywhere. It is the biggest, hottest buzzword. And while we've made great strides in getting more kids, especially girls and people who identify as underserved minorities like us, involved in STEM, I just wonder if sometimes we're missing an opportunity to remind kids that there's more than one way to skin a cat, as they say. There's more than one way to get there. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. There's not just one way. There are multiple different ways and they need, all need to be explored. Yes. I hope you get to do that for your job. So I want to switch gears a little bit. And one of the aspects I love about your backstory is that Again, that you are a Black Latino man in biotech and digital health, exploring these new convergences. And because I've searched high and low for people like you, and there really aren't that many, it's a really big deal to me. Like my siblings, I've already told them about you. They were blown away. And my parents were married and young, and they were uneducated. And my mom went back to school. And there were three of us out of their marriage. So like, sort of like you, right? And it's a big deal. It really is. I'm wondering what your thoughts are about being now a role model. Does it influence you in terms of your profession and some of the decisions you make? Well, I know what you mean by Black Latino, but I personally prefer a Black Colombian or Afro-Colombian. And the reason for that is that in Latin America, there is this racial democracy boom, which under the liberal democracy's scaffold represents just an ideal opportunity to promote shallow forms of multiculturalism that are not really welcoming and fostering any environment of true racial diversity and inclusion with equal access and opportunities for all people. So mm-hmm. all across Latin America, you know, particularly in Colombia, Brazil, Peru, and Dominican Republic, there is a, a long history of racial discrimination and ongoing exclusion and inequality against its indigenous and Black inhabitants. That's that right. explains why you and other people have hard time finding Black Colombians or Black Peruvians in higher education or biotech and digital health. So it's not that there are not talented Black people in South America. It's just right. that, for the most part, historical social oppression has kept us at the very bottom of the pyramid. Yes, I know. And that's why I should clarify there. I completely understand that there is not a lack of us who are capable and able and doing amazing things in our everyday life. It's just that in this particular field, we're not here. We're not represented in a way that we need to be. And it really matters because if you look at the global conversation that's happening around biotech and medical innovation, it is one of the biggest industries, not only in this country, but in the world. And it's about, oh, how do we control these populations, population health, value-based care? What they're really talking about are people who are two or more you know, multiple conditions, which happen to be the most marginalized, who are often going to be black and brown because socially they've been oppressed around the world. And so then it becomes a problem if you're not at the table creating the solution and asking the questions professionally. We're never going to really get to the heart of that matter and free the people that we've been socially oppressing in every sector of business, particularly, though, healthcare. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the most medically and financial risk uh, individuals are low income individuals, which for the most part happen to be people of color. Of course, we have also older individuals from all races that are also facing multi-morbidities and and clinical and financial risks. 
but a better job really needs to be done in order to include individuals from all walk of life, right? Not just those that have been traditionally presented with opportunities, but those that have been disfranchised. And mm -hmm. earlier you asked me about how that influences my professional life, and it does. I am very socially conscious and I feel like I always have to deliver more than what is expected from me because people are not just judging me, but are also judging a whole community that has not been represented at the discussion table. And I'm fine with the challenge because I am confident in myself. I have been tested in the past and I know I can deliver, but it influences me in many different ways. I mean, for example, in career decisions. I mean, for instance, this summer, I had to choose between taking a senior role at a global company in Europe and just go with the flow or joining MIT and work to actually transform the flow. So mm. I chose the latter. I, I, I say, well, I just want to be one of the pioneers that is actually shaping how things get done. And I thought of different things, including the fact that uh, very few Black people join Harvard or MIT in any capacity, despite the fact that Boston has a large community of Black people. So those are things that are really driving factors when it comes for me to actually make decisions and engage with my colleagues. Wow. I love it. I mean, this is what these conversations is all about. And you basically hit the nail on the head when you said you could have went with the flow, but you're choosing to transform the flow and you're using your own experiences because you are socially conscious. Yeah, exactly. Okay um, I'm sorry to cut you off. Uh, that's okay. I just wanted to, to add to that because that's very important what you just said. I mean, I truly thought about the type of leader I wanted to be. So I asked myself, should I just cope and fake it to fit in by possibly changing my core values just for the money? Or should I challenge the status quo by offering an alternative perspective while still being able to represent who I am? And I chose the latter. Powerful. So the quote I used in my high school yearbook was, two paths converge in the woods, and I chose the one less traveled. I think when you can do that, you kind of, not to be a martyr or anything, but you know, there's some of us who, I mean, I knew very early on that I was probably kind of be the ride or die <laughs> and the kind of the token person, even if it was just meaning that I was going to be the token for my family, because there's a story behind how we got here. And I made that choice and it's been good for me because there have been days where I wanted to throw in the towel and like, people just don't get it. Oh, I'm so sick. But I just can't quit. And it sounds like you're the same way. It sounds like we are in similar pages. Yes. <laughs> and I'm going to get to that because that's why I invited you on this show as a dark horse. And I want to ask another question in terms of the uniqueness of the intersection that you're at. Technology, biotech, healthcare, even in business as well. And now you're advising some of the brightest minds in the country. Because up until this point, you've been in that advisory role for MIT and Harvard. What excites you the most? Well, there are a lot of things that actually are exciting to me. I just want to quote Klaus Schwab, the founder and executive chairman of the World Economic Forum. Last year, he stated that we are at the brink of a technological revolution that will blur the boundaries between the physical, digital, and biological worlds. And indeed, I mean, the digitization, the impact and pace of 
technology breakthroughs in fields such as nanotechnology, biotechnology, artificial intelligence, quantum computing, and wireless mesh networks will fundamentally change civilization in ways that humankind has never experienced before. And the change will basically permeate all aspects of society, including the way people interact, the economic landscape, the skills needed to get a good job, and even political decision making. So I'm very excited about the future. I often ask myself questions such as, how will complex systems such as individuals, entities, organizations, and societies endure and thrive in this changing landscape. So in my opinion, everybody, not just the youth or midpoint professionals, really need to rethink what value means for them. Will it be also valuable in the future? So those are the type of questions that I'm thinking. Mm-hmm funny because yesterday when I went to this meeting about the future of education, it was talking a lot about the education ecosystem and the healthcare ecosystem. And I thought to myself, I almost said it, but I didn't. Well, we as humans are an ecosystem. Exactly. Right? We have our own ecosystem. <laughs> Don't forget it. We're in our, we're sure the world is an ecosystem, but we ourselves are an ecosystem. I always tell people, I think the most powerful thing about figuring out the future and what your destiny is about going inward and figuring out who you are and trying to understand your own ecosystem, literally. From all angles, because that will tell you the world. That will tell you what is to come. If you can just simply go inward and figuring out who you are, whether that's spiritually, physically, emotionally, mentally, what have you, but it's taking those same kind of principles and learnings and then applying it to the real world. Correct. But one thing that I often tell people at different speaking engagements that I get invited to is that, I mean, compared to the past, compared to previous industrial revolutions, what we are facing right now and what we will continue to face is like nothing we've seen before. Because all these different ecosystems or, or worlds, they are just converging into one unit. Everything that we know about physical digital and biological, they're converging. And in the past, that hasn't really happened, at least not in an intelligent way. And that's happening right now, and it will not be stopped. So convergence right there will play a huge role, but most importantly and equally exciting is emergence. Mm -hmm. What will come up? I don't know, but those are very exciting things that just keep me up at night thinking about, wow, I mean, all of these different breakthrough technologies are evolving at an exponential pace, but they are not just doing it in isolation. They are now coming together and people are becoming much more proficient at making those integrations. But oftentimes we don't really think about the unintended consequences. So I'm sure there will be some great unintended consequences, but as well some bad unintended consequences. And the idea here is not to try to predict the future because predicting the future is a very risky and poorly developed task. There are some people that they think that they can actually predict it, but I don't agree with that. The idea here is to actually think about plausible scenarios and how we should actually be better prepared to address every possibility. That's amazing. That's a great answer. <laughs>
<laughs> if you could distill it down or think about this in respect to technologies, which technologies should the youth or adults in general or those at the beginning of their careers be paying the most attention to in terms of opportunity for change? Well, I, I mentioned a couple of those technologies, but personally speaking, because of my professional interests, and closely following biotechnology, synthetic biology, artificial intelligence, and wireless mesh networks. I think that those will be truly disruptive technologies on their own, but when you combine them, truly outstanding developments will emerge. So I think that people really need to pay close attention to that. Not only artificial intelligence, a lot of people are just so focused on artificial intelligence, mm -hmm. which is good because it's been progressing. I don't think that artificial intelligence is at a point where the most of itself is giving its greatest potential. But it's progressing, it's making progress, which is good. But when you connect or combine it with other fields, such as synthetic biology, then you can actually start thinking about things such as molecular robotics. That's like a brand new hot topic right now. The ability to create uh, nanoscale robots composed of biological parts that perform computational tasks, just like what we do right now with electronics, that's huge. Why? Because now yeah. we start thinking about designing these synthetic intelligence systems that could potentially engage in surveillance of asymptomatic triggers of disease, right? Mm. And, and instead of just waiting for people to get sick when it's very late and very little can be done, now we potentially could use these type of applications to prevent and intercept disease. And actually, that's one of the topics that I was actually working in industry. Like I said, I was in the pharmaceutical industry and there was a bold initiative around this field called disease interception, which is a brand new paradigm. And I was very pleased that it was actually being led by industry, right? It didn't really come from academia. It was developed and I helped frame some of the foundation frameworks of that and I actually wrote a publication that is actually being reviewed at one of the big journals in biotechnology hopefully it will come up soon but the whole idea was to intercept disease right most chronic diseases such as cancer Alzheimer's diabetes they start developing over the course of years I mean nobody really gets sick overnight mm -hmm. uh, Problem right now is that healthcare is very reactive and passive. So unless somebody has observable symptoms, then we don't really know whether they're sick. But talking about disease processes that have been going on over the course of decades, and we wait okay. for those disease processes to take over our bodies to mm -hmm. pretty much destroy uh, fundamental biological networks that are essential for the survival and function of organisms or individuals. Right. And we develop symptomatic solutions that are just meant to address the symptoms while the underlying issue is just temporarily hidden, but it's still progressing, right? I mean, the underlying issue is not being addressed, so it's actually growing worse. So, so right. that really creates a complex dynamic where we address symptoms the underlying issue is still going on. And then these symptomatic solutions, they are not perfect. A lot of cases, they're just bad. And they create unintended, undesirable side effects 
So now you have a complex interaction between the original symptoms and the unintended side effects, and then the reactive action from the healthcare establishment to come up with an additional symptomatic solution to address this secondary side effect. And then later, the original issue will actually come up stronger. So, I mean, it's just a bad, broken system and paradigm to address healthcare which, by the way, is not really healthcare, it's disease care, because not health is being actually cared. I mean, diseases, processes are the ones that are actually being addressed with symptomatic solutions that are not more than palliative solutions for late-stage current diseases. So if we are able to focus our efforts on trying to identify the earliest non-symptomatic signs or triggers of disease and monitor them over time and determine what the best intervention window is, I think it would be a lot better than just waiting for people to get sick and have all these multiple comorbidities and these inefficient polypharmacy regimes that are not really working. So these type of technologies that I described earlier will potentially help facilitate those efforts. Yeah, you got to go out there and talk to all the medical schools, nursing schools, any of the allied health schools, ASAP. Uh, funny because I actually had the pleasure of working for homeopaths that are renowned here in North America. And their belief in their paradigm is disease manifests mostly because of emotion or a feeling or a thought. And it starts with like that thought and then the energy kind of transforms and it would eventually manifest as a symptom. And they treat like with like. It's just an interesting paradigm to research and to consider because those of us who are like for me, I went to nursing school, so that's allopathic care. You're treating a disease with typically the opposite. So if you have a hot sensation, you're going to treat it with a cold ice pack, you know? And I questioned that, which made me stop and pause and actually go and explore these other areas of healthcare. And mostly I was just concerned about the well-being of humanity. I mean, every single time a nurse would have to give a diagnosis in addition to the medical diagnosis for a patient, but every single one of my patients had the condition of failure to thrive. And I would take the hospital, for instance, who loves being in the hospital? Nobody. So the question is, who is thriving and who is just surviving? Well, many of us are just surviving, not thriving. And that's about the, right? It's, it's, It's really about humanity, right? And being the best version of yourself. That's healthcare. Exactly. I think you just you just nailed it. I think that we really need to take a step back and rethink about what humanity really means and how mm-hmm. how we are actually engaging with fellow human beings. Yeah. Based on what's important to them. Yeah, this is the reason why I want to introduce you to Dr. Vivian yeah. Ming because one of the things that she talks about is like AI, for instance. We actually do use artificial intelligence, what she doesn't like to call it that. She likes to call it augmented intelligence because she said, if we can get good at that, then we are going to remove some of the things people don't want to be doing. For instance, their job (laughs) to make the money, to live the life that they really want to live, which will then give them the opportunity to thrive. So it's about thriving as a human. And if we can take away the tasks that aren't as productive for us and we really don't like to do or do them begrudgingly. What does that mean for humanity? Oh my gosh, like, could you expand somebody's life just by that? Probably. I mean, probably. I mean, (laughs) but again, there are so many different possibilities and outcomes that come out of that. 
Interestingly enough, people usually try to see the good of what a breakthrough technology can do, but they don't really spend much time thinking about those unintended consequences. So, and that's really what worries me. Because I think that for the most part, we human beings are creative, like experimenting, exploring, and prototyping. You see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And having a prototype that works beautifully under controlled conditions. But then when you bring that into the real world, then you, you start seeing discrepancies or not previously thought outcomes or results. And the way I see all these different technological breakthroughs is that I see everything within a spectrum of very or extreme possibilities. I mean, very great things can be done, but at the same time, I fear that devastating outcomes could also come. And like I said, I mean, I have personally worked with artificial intelligence uh, 12 years ago. When I was uh, working on my bachelor's in electronics engineering, I was actually coding artificial intelligence algorithms. So Did when you I talk know that about that's what you were, were you calling it artificial intelligence or were you calling it something else? No, at that time, we, we would call it that way, but I sort of knew it wasn't that way really because everything was kind of dumb. So like, how can this be intelligent? <laughs> right? but, but here's the thing. The issue back then was that we were lacking computing power. So when you look at the algorithms that I was actually working on a decade ago, a lot of those algorithms are the exact same algorithms today, but we have a lot more computing power and a lot more data, labeled data. So those three things converging, well, there has been a remarkably unprecedented progress in AI and machine learning. So yeah. the algorithms were intelligent at that time. It was just the approach was not delivering because there was a lack of other factors that were not there. But now all these different factors are here. But the technology is not at its highest point right now. And the reason I said that is because after I did my degree in electronics engineering, I went to get my degree in biotechnology and I was actually working with biological neural networks. So mm. I know exactly what the gap is between these two different worlds. And I got to tell you, the complexity that is seen at the biological world is overwhelming. And most of the most impressive uh, applications right now, they're based on trying to mimic in biological neural networks. But in my opinion, they're good, but they're not good enough and a better job can be done. I'm aware of people that are really trying to push the boundaries of conventional thinking because, I mean, conventionally right now, most people are excited about this application, but those applications are just based on, on quantity. So you have these artificial neural networks that are based on hundreds and hundreds of layers. So that's volume. Right. But they, right. Really lack, they really lack the architecture that is exhibited in the real world. So if people are able to come up with a higher level of biological architecture mimicking into these artificial networks, I think that possibilities are unthinkable. And there are people that are working on that effort. So I think that maybe within five, 10 years, I mean, whatever we have seen today is basically nothing that we have thought about. Like I said, I mean, everything that we've seen today, I was already aware of that possibility 10 years ago. 
But as the technology and the architecture improve and evolves, I think that the possibilities are unprecedented. And on that note, talking about like biology right now, you might have heard of this revolutionary technique to edit genes, which is called... Yeah, the, the CRISPR. Yeah, CRISPR, exactly. Yeah. So I was fortunate to actually attend a lecture in May that was given by one of the pioneers of this technology. Basically, she came to Harvard and she spoke about the process, how the technology came up, how the different possibilities and applications were actually being used and developed. And that was great. But then one of the things that I was actually thinking was when I actually spoke with Dr. Jennifer Duna, which is the person that gave the lecture and one of the pioneers, was the fact that I was like, hey, I mean, this technology is great, but I'm also worried about our primitive knowledge regarding the cybernetics of gene regulation and the lack of attention to unintended consequences. Because mm -hmm. we already know that within our genome, biological regulation is hyper-empathized. And we know very little about how these genetic networks work. Like I said before, yes, we are great at identifying what particular factor about how biology works. And we can make changes. But those changes right. can really have devastating consequences if we don't really understand the implications of what has been done. So interestingly enough, the journal Nature Biotechnology actually published an, an article indicating that once the double strand of DNA is actually being broken by CRISPR, then the biological molecular machinery frenetically and desperately tries to repair the cuts by throwing random pieces of DNA and deleting all the random regions. So for people that don't know, in cancer, a similar process creates fusion genes fulfilling the basis of oncogenes. So right there, that's a big deal because people yeah. are already talking about, oh, well, we're going to have genetic therapies and we're going to cure diseases and all of that. Well, you might end up doing something with one particular disease. I don't know if you're going to cure it. You might cure or not, but you might also end up creating a whole bunch of new diseases that we don't even mm -hmm. know how they actually work, perform, and then if they oh get passed on from individuals to individuals. I mean, that's what I'm talking about. There are extreme possibilities. There are great things that can be done with technology. But on the other hand, the lack of non-systemic thinking precludes people from actually realizing the unintended devastating consequences that could be done. I agree. And you know what? I'm surprised that more and more schools don't require or associations don't require some of the scientists to take empathy and mindfulness training. Because if you do, you'll think about the extremes in terms of humanity and other sentient beings, what we're really here to do. And I don't know that we're really here to delete DNA. You know, that's a fundamental philosophical question about humanity and who we are. I mean, you that's know? so great that you mentioned that. I mean, who determines who can alter the genome? Exactly. And the let's not genome. even get started because I, as an everyday citizen, don't have access to my own genome. But it's mine. It is mine. It's more unique than my fingerprint. And I cannot have my genome given to me in its entirety because it's too powerful. It's unfair I think about it in terms of social justice and ethics question. So you're telling me that I can go and sign up to do 23andMe or any other type of genetic test. I can sign up, do that, 
give them my genome. They can have it, keep it on somebody's server, but I can't. It's mine. It's more valuable to me than my social security number. It's more valuable to me than a visa. It's more valuable to me than a dollar. It is who I am. Yeah, but then that's a personal decision that you have to make because you already know how they operate. So if you do it, I mean, I mean, I agree with you 100%. It's your data and they're monetizing your data and you don't even mm -hmm. get royalties, right? So that's yes. not funny. But they told, well, that's how we operate. So it's up to you. Um, I think that that model it needs to be debunked because mm -hmm. it abuses people's ignorance in a lot of sense and also monetizes based on hundreds and thousands of people's DNAs. So that's not exactly. right. Exactly. Talk about data and the exploiting people's data. The most valuable data is our genome and or any other biological waste. So it could be my blood or whatever. And those things are being sold behind my back. So the data points are actually being sold as well over and over and over again behind my back without my knowledge and without me ever getting reimbursed for it. And where's the ethics in that? That's one of the biggest dilemmas in our society right now. I mean, again, the people who probably suffer the most from that are people who are uneducated and you know, ignorant into this process. They don't know what happens because how would they know? They never worked at a doctor's office or a lab, and they certainly aren't the ones necessarily making those you know, executive business decisions at a biotechnology company or whatever. So all the more reason why we need more diversity at the table making those decisions. Absolutely. I agree with you. <laughs> we should segue there. So with the previous questions in mind and the things, the conversation we just had, what are your thoughts regarding diversity, equity, and inclusion and emerging technology? For instance, why do you suppose it matters to welcome and include diverse people into the areas of emerging technology? Well, I think that for a lot of organizations, diversity, equity, and inclusion are just PR check marks. And the purpose is defeated when they bring diverse talent based on race, gender, or culture, and they expect these folks to behave like the traditional dominant folks. One of the most highly productive areas in the world is Silicon Valley. So when you go there, you realize how diverse the core technology teams are. I mean, they are a driving force of innovation. Unfortunately, diversity starts diluting when you go up the ladder. So it's such a contradiction that you see there. But on one hand, at the very bottom, it provides a foundation of the power of diversity because just one type of individuals based on race, culture, gender, cannot really get it to work fine. But as you're actually moving up at the decision-making stage, that changes. And that's something that mm -hmm. I mean, Silicon Valley has been actually being criticized because of that. I mean, one of the biggest problems that the black community in the U.S. has is the pipeline is leaking towards prison or the cemetery. So mm -hmm. compared to whites and Asians, blacks face many social difficulties and disparities. I think that progress can be done. I mean, in the future, I would love to help expose those black and brown kids from South Boston to the environment I work at. I mean, the same way that the white and Asian kids are exposed at a very early stage. That's something that I can actually try to make an impact because the preparation, the education part really needs to be there, right? Mm -hmm. So one thing is that, yeah, we care about diversity and inclusion, but 
uh, we really need to do that mindfully in such a way that we are preparing the community or, or people. We are empowering the people to actually being able to compete because this is a competition-based world we live in. And while we are aware of historical social inequalities, the reality is that many times people know about it, but if you don't really have anything to bring to the table, I mean, they just don't really care. So empowering these communities at a very early stage is just very critical. But on the other hand, society as a whole, not just the government, society as a whole needs to do better because this whole uh, pipe leaking towards the prison or the cemetery thing that has been going on for so many years here in the U.S. is just outrageous. Yes, it's gone on for too long. Ugh, we could have a whole panel on this and maybe we should. Maybe that'll be like the first thing I do for The Darkest Horse because this is a very important conversation, but it's so complicated. It's so It is very complicated. Complex. Yeah, it's complex because we are as humans. Yeah, it shouldn't be easy because we're not easy. We don't even know. We don't understand ourselves in our entirety. So how could we understand this concept or this problem in its entirety? Kind of a question that I don't know if we'll ever have the answer to, but it's important. It keeps me up at night. I know it keeps a lot of people up at night, but I don't know that we'll ever have all the answers. But in terms of what we can do, like you said, you do think from your current seat of position and power that you can do something within your own spheres of influence. Do you feel like you have people to rely on or support you in that, whether it's at MIT or in your own network of people who share the same belief about humanity? Yeah, I think that there are a lot of people that do share that belief and surprisingly, a lot of people in position of power that has been traditionally called in this position, I'm talking about like white males. I mean, I've mm -hmm. across some very compassionate and thoughtful white leaders that get it. And those are the type of alliances that are needed because while, while I believe in the power of grassroots movements to raise public awareness, unless you are able to engage with those that are in position of powers and have the ability to influence decision-making process, it's going to be very challenging to engage in effective change. Mm -hmm. So being able to realize or identify those individuals, I think is critical. And like I said, I mean, based on my personal experience, I have been fortunate to come across those individuals and those are like allies that I can actually rely on. Thank goodness for those allies because we've never been able to in the history of humanity change anything without an ally on the other side yeah, of the aisle. That concerted effort. I mean, you cannot just do it on your own or do yeah. your own community. I think that a lot more progress can be done. And here I'm talking about like diversity as a whole, not just racial, but gender, yep. sexual, like cultural. You really need to connect with people that really care about it, but genuinely, not just as a PR process because, oh, it's just going to make me look good. Or There's process. a lot of that right the now. Is, the process is pretty much like handicapped. It's not real. Mm -hmm. It doesn't go anywhere. But there are those who really care and they're aware and they want to engage, they want to help. So it's good to have an open mind and engage with those folks. I know. It's complicated and convoluted right now in terms of the space of people saying, oh, I'm really interested in here for diversity, equity, and inclusion and for the betterment of all. And I think you have to pay attention to people's actions. A lot of it's lip service, but it's like, okay, the proof is in the pudding. The proof is in the work that you do and how you show up every day. And are you making progress and asking questions? That's the proof. I mean, purposes are deduced from behavior, not from rhetoric. 
There are people that come up with very well-articulated mission statements about diversity and inclusion. But when you look at their behavior, that's actually telling you other things. So I oftentimes just focus on behavior and establish patterns of past behaviors based on what you're actually trying to articulate and how that actually translates to the real world. So I think that's kind of a much more efficient way to look at it. I agree. Oh, I'm glad you said that. Okay. We talked a little bit about this in terms of the barriers or adversities that you've had to overcome. And I put that in quotations because you might perceive it one way and I might perceive it a different way. And then those listening could perceive it a completely different way. So what would you say you've had to overcome to get this far? It could be the obvious or those that are not as obvious to all of us listening. I'm so glad the way you put it, you said how you perceive the barriers. And that's so humane because you actually recognize that my experience might be completely different than yours. So as far as barriers, well, a lot. I mean, coming from Colombia, a lot. From, mm -hmm. from the weather, the language, and having all of my family in Colombia to the right. stigma of being Colombian and the negative, seriously joking association of people with drug cartels and cocaine, which wow. by the way, I have seen more people using drugs here in the U.S. than in Colombia. Colombia never really interacted with any drug lord, but then there is this whole stereotype about people from Colombia sort of like being involved with drugs. And so wow. that one of the adversaries that I usually constantly have to go through. And another thing that I have unfortunately experienced is the interaction with police. I'm very scared of cops in the U.S., and, and that was one thing that I just didn't really know what it was like to actually have an encounter with police uh, up until I had one. And before that, like I said, I mean, I can just hear the news about Black people facing this situation or other encounter or whatever. And I can sympathize. I can try to empathize the best I can. But I can never really know what it's like to go through that situation. So I just, just didn't know, even though I'm a Black person, I mean, I just just didn't know. So, I mean, to make a long story short, I mean, one day I got stopped by two cops. And to tell you the truth... Where were you at? Were you in Boston or Chicago no, was, or where were you? No, I was in the suburbs of Philadelphia. Okay. And I thought I was going to die. One of the most terrifying experiences I have ever had, and I totally relate to the different stories and voices of Black people talking about the whole situation. And these cops really gave me a lot of hard time for no reason. I have not violated any legal moral rule. I was just riding my bike. Then a car passed next to me, and then he made a turn, and then he came back, and I saw the lights. And, and I was like, Really? I mean, do, do they actually pull over guys on bikes? And I didn't know it was me, but then they just kept doing it. So I had to stop. And basically, the guy, I saw you, uh, your behavior is suspicious. What are you doing here? And I had just moved around that area. So I was not very familiar with the area, but I wanted to get familiar with the area. And then he just kept asking questions. And one of the things that really struck me is that he was so frustrated with the fact that I was so clean that I had not criminal records, that there was nothing wrong with me. 
And it's hard because when I had that situation, I just didn't even know how to explain who I am because I realized very quickly that he would not believe me. So wow. I just thought to be very simple. I just like, okay, what's the best way to introduce myself to this guy from this different race and given all these issues and discrepancies with race here in the US? And I was like, well, I work on research. I know about science and I do science. And the guy gave me that look like, well, really? I mean, and, and he was like, yeah, I'm a scientist too. So he goes from a situation where he initially thinks that I'm up to something wrong and then to actually start like mocking me. And I, it was just terrifying. I just felt that it was a dire situation where if I made the wrong move, I could die because I've seen it before. And this time it was me right there. What year was it? I think it was two years ago. So this is after the Black Lives Matter movement had kicked off. This is after yeah, Mike exactly. Brown. And the whole like Freddie Gray and all these guys have been killed by police. So I mean, all of those thoughts were in my mind. And I was like, well, I have to comply everything they tell me. I'll just do it and all of that. But people don't realize what it's like to be stopped. I mean, people just mm -hmm. think that black people misbehave and they're up to something wrong or whatever. And then when you are there with them, you just don't comply. But I was doing the complete opposite. I was complying. I was not presenting any resistance. And I was cooperating. But the more I did it, the more frustrated this guy got. And then another guy came up. So now it were two cops. And the other one was more reasonable. But then after a while, I told them, hey, I don't appreciate this profiling because you guys already went through my background and you guys didn't find anything and was stopping you guys here with me. And then the guy was like, quote unquote, he said, I've never met anybody. He was like a scientist. That's what he said. So basically what I actually understood was like, well, I mean, black people really like with your credentials, your background, no, there's something wrong. But that's kind of like what I went through. But uh, I mean, eventually the guys kind of like realized that they had the wrong guy and they made a mistake because I could see it on their faces. But I was just thinking, I mean, if I would have been a different type of person with a different racial characteristics, that would have been maybe, I mean, that, that would have happened or maybe like five minutes, but it was in the middle of the winter and it was like 30 minutes going back, and forth, back and forth. And I was like, why is this happening? So... Okay, well, after that, actually, it got better because you can realize that I have an accent. So the mm -hmm. guy said, well, where are you from? <laughs> and I was like, okay. Oh, gosh. Uh-oh. <laughs> it's about to get interesting. I was like, okay, well, the, the black part didn't work. <laughs> so <laughs> uh, we'll see how it goes when I tell them I'm from Colombia. So I thought about it like... But I'm like, no, I, I gotta, I gotta tell the truth because otherwise it's gonna get worse. And then I told the guy, well, uh, I'm from Colombia, and the guy was like, oh, you're Colombian. And then I had a backpack, and the guy's like, oh my gosh, do, do you have any weapons? And he asked me. <sighs> Uh, and then I was like, no, I don't have any weapons. And then he actually, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna patch you down or whatever. And we're going to open. But for what reason? We are, what was the reason for stopping you? Because they thought you looked like a, a suspect in Philadelphia on your bike in the middle of winter? He said, you look suspicious. <laughs> so wow. on a bike, on a bike, you look suspicious. Mm -hmm. And then the guy opened uh, my backpack and there was nothing there and whatever. And I was like, you know what? I mean, this is just 
unbelievable. I mean, I really wanted to keep it simple for you guys to understand, but I'm not just a scientist. I'm a doctor in biotechnology, and I happen to be trained at some of the best universities in the world. Uh, right now, I'm not a cocaine dealer. I do deal with drugs because I do research for drug discovery. And uh, you know what? When I go back to work, I never discriminate the type of work I do, just thinking, well, this research will primarily benefit Black people. When I go there, I actually try to think of the global humanity, how can humanity and people that look like you could be benefited. And that was a bold decision that I made, but I was at the top of everything. I was like, well, I mean, this is either make or break it. And the guys just looked at each other and the guys kind of like, wow, yeah, well, I'm sorry. Didn't know anybody like you or whatever. I mean, that was a moment that I haven't really experienced anywhere else in the world. Like I said before, I have lived in three different continents, and this is a pervasive situation that it just seems to be very prevalent here in the U.S. And unless you don't face it, unless you don't experience it, you don't really think it's real. But I got to tell you, it's real. Yeah, unfortunately, and it's embarrassing. But it's important that you just share that story because you can work so hard. You can do everything right and buy the book, so to speak, and then some and still have that experience. And had they had a bad day or you know, one too many hours on their shift, they could have pulled for that gun and shot you. Could have done a lot of things. It goes wrong every day. When I think back, one of the things that I actually kept thinking is I'm not going to get into that car. And this is just going to be bad because if I don't do it, they will try to force me and that will be it. But everything that kept coming to my mind was like, well... Everything that I remember is that when black guys get into those cars, they either get beat up or killed. So mm -hmm. why would I want to expose myself into that situation? If you want to finish me, well, you can just do it here without pain. But it's crazy. It's crazy that somebody have to think about that. For yeah. no reason. For no reason. I mean, why, black. what was I doing? I mean, I, I was... Being I, black. You, were, you know, we have that joke, right? You were driving while black. You were riding while black. That was your crime. And I just, like I said, I have never really realized that it could be that bad. I mean, I was like, yeah, I feel sorry for people that go through those situations, but I lived it. I went through it myself and it wasn't funny. It wasn't proper. It was humiliating and it was terrifying. It is. And you know what? You know, you've been lucky because when you're here in Harvard, for instance, I mean, you probably won't be subjected to that as much, I hope. But depending on where you live, where your zip code is, if you're a black man and you have a PhD like yourself and you've worked at the best universities in the world, you are subjecting yourself every day to that experience and that trauma, that changes the person. Yeah, absolutely. But I don't know if you recall a few years ago, Dr. Henry Louis Gates, the prominent yeah. scholar of African-American mm -hmm. studies at Harvard, he actually was a victim of that situation. And I remember that he actually said similar things. I mean, up until you actually go through that situation, you don't really realize how bad that can be. And when you are in that situation, it doesn't matter really who you are because they would not believe you. And like I said, in my case, I tried to <laughs> just keep it very low-key. I was like, what's the most reasonably, understandably for these people to just work with me? And that just didn't work. But then when I actually told him who I really was, it was such a like confusing moment for these guys because the way I saw on their faces, it could not be possibly real that a person that looks like me could exist. Oof. 
But you know oh what? I mean, when I remember this story, when I tell this story to people, I first of all I joke with other like black friends from the U.S. and I tell them, well, you know what? Your only problem here in the U.S. is that you're black. I have three problems. I'm black. I'm from Colombia. I'm, I'm an immigrant. I have an accent. So <laughs> life could be worse, right? That's right. Thank that's you. Kind of, that's kind of joke. Right. But it's kind of like, well, let's let's not try to make a big deal of it. But in all seriousness, I feel bad because I feel that in one way or another, I'm privileged. I don't have any criminal records. And yes, they will give me a hard time for 30 minutes, but I will hopefully still manage to come out alive. But I really think about those people that they haven't really had the opportunity to go to the best university in France or Boston and that look like me and that for so many different social reasons, they happen to have a criminal record or the stigma and they will not just be able to get away. So that's kind of the things that kind of like make me sad and mm -hmm. makes me think that, well, I mean, something really needs to be done so these communities can be empowered through like better education, through better professional opportunities so they can actually face and address these situations better. I can bring this back to the AI thing, what Dr. Ming said. If we can get technology to take care of some of the racial profiling that cops do. <laughs> yeah, right. But they can wear some Google glasses. <laughs> well, but, but, but it depends on who actually work on the AI because exactly aware of bias in, in, in algorithms and coding. So well, yeah, and to that point, biases, right? Biases, you will be programming those biases into these... Mm algorithms, and then it's going to be worse. Right. We were talking about this too, about a common question that she actually gets is, can AI be racist or biased? She said, absolutely. It's however you raise it. It's like raising a kid. In AI That's can be whatever you want it to be initially, mm -hmm. how you set it up initially. And then after it goes running by itself, I mean, who knows what can be done. But initially, if you train the algorithms with racially biased data, what results do you think you're going to get? Yeah. And most of the data is racially biased. I mean, I gotta be honest. A lot of the data is, is biased, not, not just in, in terms of like, like race, racism or whatever, but like a lot of like healthcare data, biological. Exactly. Data. That's, I mean, think about it, right? Another, yeah. That's another thing that we're talking about, but. Yeah. Uh, I mean, let's take A1C levels, for instance, that was actually taken from a cohort of people who were white. And then now we have African descent folks that are coming off the charts with their A1C levels extremely diabetic, according to this particular scale. And it's probably because first and foremost, you never included those people in the study from the beginning. So then that really skewed the data. Then we built models of care and reimbursement off of that. And then the data that we're taking all the time from shopping data to the citizens data that we collect, and it's crucial. And all the more reason, like you said, who is doing the algorithms and who is doing the programming? We have to diversify there, not just racially, not just from an ethnic point, but there's so many other ways to diversify. <sighs> We got so much work to do. I hope people hit you up after this and come talk to you and ask more questions. But I guess the one thing that I'm thinking from that last conversation we had, I think the police department of Philadelphia owes you an apology. They're going to owe you one, especially after you helped the world. <laughs> Seriously. It's ridiculous. Yeah, I'm not sure they care about that. but uh... Uh, They probably should, though. I'm sorry. But I'm also thankful that you shared that story. Thank you. And I want to, we probably should wrap up, but I want to ask one final question about the show, which the show is named The Darkest Horse. 
I consider you to be one, but do you consider yourself a dark horse? I mean, yeah. I mean, I think there are some aspects of the concept that I am related to. I still don't think that I'm part of prominence, but I've come a long way and I'm grateful to be connected and engaging with extremely influential people that have noticed and realized the true potential that I have and how my contributions are, are meaningful. So I hope other people can also relate to that and realize that. So let's just say that I'm trajectory to becoming uh, <laughs> a senior or, or another level of, of the dark horse story. Um, ironically enough, in the past, I have used the nickname of Black Stallion, which is a dark mm. horse. <laughs> See? So, you were... Yeah. <laughs> You set yourself up for it then. Yeah, you know, without, <laughs> even, it up. without even knowing it. <laughs> That's so funny. See, you manifested this. It's all your fault. <laughs> Just kidding. I think it's a good thing to be called a dark horse, and I consider myself one, but I would say that it changes in just the two of us, for instance, on a piece of paper, if they're doing a census, it's like I identify as black and Latina. You would have the same answer, but there's so much more to who we are. Exactly. And it begs, right? And it begs the question of when we're talking to people and we're looking at talent, and we're looking at people who we're going to choose for our team and choose for our companies to run our world. It's really worth it to stop and ask questions about my experience is this, but what's yours? Because two people with the same title is never going to give you the same answer. And they certainly probably don't have the exact same background because they don't have the same genes. Absolutely. Yeah. So you're awesome. <laughs> and I'm so proud to know you, to talk to you of the things you're doing. I'm looking forward to all the discoveries you're going to make. And I just invite you back whenever you want to have another conversation. Before we wrap up, how can people get in touch with you? I'm not very active with social media. The social channel that I use the most is LinkedIn. So I'm always happy to connect with anybody as long as there is an interesting intersection. So please uh, send me an invite with a brief introduction and I'll be happy to look at it. Just don't click on the connect button without introducing yourself. I think that that's so impersonal, but like I said, I mean, I'm happy to connect with people. And well, if you also do a, a Google search, you might be able to find my email address. So <laughs> yeah, we'll make them do the work. <laughs> what does it take for a dark horse like yourself to win, to make it in this society? What are the characteristics, values, beliefs, habits? Based on my personal experience, I think that to be a dark horse, you have to have skin in the game. In other words, you have to pay your dues set goals, be disciplined and unconventional, and take risks while trying to achieve those goals. And you are the only person that can be held accountable for the consequence of your actions. Powerful. I agree with you wholeheartedly. You definitely emulate all those things. You have it all. You are the darkest horse right now. You are killing it, man. I'm Thank you. That was awesome. Excellent. My pleasure. This was fun. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Yeah. Have a great day. Yeah. Thanks to you. You take care. Bye. You too. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay. We're back on the other side. I told you it was so worth it. Absolutely. I love that. <laughs> I mean, talk about breadth and depth. This conversation represents everything that we love about The Darkest Horse and all the work that we get to do. There's so many things we could cherry pick and talk about. Mm -hmm. So why don't we just pick a couple of them? Yeah, cool? I love that. So one of the things that I feel like I need to talk about 
is obviously just this backstory of his that reminds me so much of my own. We were both raised in these working class families and by parents who were not formally educated. And one of the things he mentioned was that his mom had gone back to school and earned her degree. And, you know, my mom did the same. We were talking about that after the fact. So we were like, wow, there's so many similarities there. And the fact that those things about us did not deter us from pursuing our dreams. And I just think for all the young people who are listening right now, I want you to take away this key message. It's not always about where you're from. It's important to acknowledge where you're from, but that does not determine where you can go. Absolutely. Yeah, I love that. I think um, when we talk about sort of what it means to be the darkest horse and how the darkest horse succeeds, I think that's exactly a big piece of it. You know, that it's not about necessarily the formal education. I mean, obviously having parents who have a formal education is a delightful privilege. It's one that I enjoy. And there's certainly ways that that is really powerful and has given me a leg up, but it's not a requirement. It doesn't limit your actual capacity on your own. And I think I love his point about the education that they gave him about sort of those qualities that make a dark horse the person worth rooting for, right? So discipline, perseverance, hard work, things like that, that you don't need a degree in order to really master. Touche. Mm. One of my favorite things that I would love to call out is the ways that intersectionality came up. I'll define intersectionality as the interconnected and interwoven nature of different social categorizations and how they combine uniquely within an individual. So you're never just a man or just Black or just Colombian or any number of other identities that Hugo might have. He's actually all of those things at once. Yes. And he shouldn't have to like necessarily decide which of those come first. I mean, sometimes mm -hmm. you do have to, right? But that's the complexity of who we mm -hmm. are. On that note, I want to point out one thing that he talked about was that he kept saying he was an Afro or a Black Colombian versus saying he was a Black Latino. And, you know, for me, I identify as a Latina because I'm from my, my family is from Mexico. And I do have family that, you know, are mestizo. So they're half Mexican, you know, indigenous people, and they're also Spaniard. Mm. What he was pointing out was that his family is not necessarily Spaniard. So there's a difference to him. Mm -hmm. And it's worth noting there for anybody who is trying to understand this whole conversation. This is very much a hot topic yeah. and a pain point for folks in the Latino community. Some people don't even want to be called Latino. They want to be called Hispanic or vice versa. Yeah. So I just want to point that out. And that the other thing is, is that it wasn't just necessarily about race. I think he was also referring to the social economic status. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, that the black people in Colombia are different yeah. than the Spaniard Colombians. Yeah. I mean, and I think when, as you move through different parts of the world and different geographies, these nuances don't show up the same way they do in the US, right? Like, I mean, in the Balkans, where my family is from, the differences among, you know, ethnicity, nationality, and religious affiliation are really complicated and intertwined, where your identity as a Serb, for example, mm -hmm. has more to do with being Orthodox Christian than it does about where you actually were born, right? Mm. And it's exactly what you're talking about. It all kind of boils together really complicatedly. And I think specifically when we talk about Hugo, the intersectionality piece is really interesting because 
he is coming into this with an intersectional identity and, you know, really kind of a thoughtful, introspective consideration of what that means for him. And he really brings that and it kind of informs his very intersectional approach to his work, right? Bringing together biology, technology, the future of work, all these really kind of different disciplines and schools of thought. It is kind of what we're talking about, right? It's these different pieces that all come together into this magical blend. And I think that's a big part of what we at The Darkest Horse through this podcast and other media we create and through our partnering and consulting with organizations, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to help people really tap into all of their parts. And I truly think that our teams, our products, our solutions, and our world will have more creative and multifaceted and better solutions as a result of being able to bring those different parts together. Yes. <laughs> Snapping. Yes. yes. All right. That is the darkest horse. Yes. Folks. Okay. All right. So call the actions for our listeners. I want to just point out one thing uh, he talked about was just like this go with the flow or change the flow mm. thing, right? <laughs> do you want to be a change agent or do you want to sort of continue business as usual? Now, back to this intersectionality piece and like who you are and showing up at work. Maybe you don't have the privilege or you don't feel like you have the privilege to be the bold radical change agent. I'm not saying you have to, but like you have a choice to make. And sometimes when you're the first, like if you're already the first and they're going to give you hell, why not just be a pioneer? <laughs> why not? Yeah. So that's my, that's my kind of Might question. Well shake call. it up. Yeah. That's my call to action question. You know, yeah. something to ponder. Cool. Um, thank you. I think mine will be strike out new ground, but bring your people with you. Something that both Shantae and I love about Hugo is his relationship with his family, with his community. And it's something that I really love and appreciate about him. And I think he's simultaneously an adventurer, an explorer, a builder, a creator, and also stays kind of really grounded and rooted in the people and place that he comes from. Yeah. And I think just want to say one thing that when you said that, like, ooh, it's almost like when you're in the room, don't forget who you're representing. Mm -hmm. Who you're bringing room. with you. Yeah, who yeah. you're bringing with you in the room. Hell yeah. Right? Yes. Okay. Cool. That was so <laughs> for questions, comments, or feedback about our project, please, please send us a note at hello at thedarkesthorse.com. This is Shantae. Reach out to me on Twitter at namaste, Shantae, N-A-M-A-S-T-E-C-H-A-N-T-E, or shoot me over an email at Shantae at thedarkesthorse.com. And I am Rada. You can email me at Rada, that's R-A-D-A, at thedarkesthorse.com, or hit me up on Twitter at Rada underscore Y. You can find more from The Darkest Horse on Twitter, Instagram, Medium, and Twitch at TDHcast or The Darkest Horse Cast on Facebook. All right, that's us, The Darkest Horse Podcast, signing out. See Bye. you next time. Ciao.